0: Hey listeners, it's Haley here and I have some incredibly exciting news to share with you all. After years of reflecting on my journeys and experiences in the nonprofits, I am finally putting pen to paper while typing and writing a book about my time in Malawi. In 2012, I embarked on an adventure to start a nonprofit in a small village living alone with no water or electricity. Through countless challenges, I managed to build a successful business that continues to make a difference today. This book is not just a memoir. It's a powerful story of resilience, passion, and the strength of community. I delve into the highs and lows, the lessons learned, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped who I am today. Whether you're in the nonprofit sector, considering starting one, or simply love a good story, this book is for you. I'm thrilled to announce that the pre-orders are now open. You can reserve your copy today through the link in the bio, which will be supporting me and this project, helping to bring my story to life. Your encouragement means the world to me and has been a driving force throughout this entire process. Thank you for being a part of this journey. Are you a nonprofit professional who's feeling overwhelmed and burnt out? Well, welcome to the Lead with Heart podcast. I'm your host, Haley Cooper. On this podcast, we will share stories of leadership, courage, and empathy that will help you learn to take care of yourself, your staff, organization, and community. You will hear from nonprofit leaders who have been in your shoes and have learned best practices to raise more revenue and make a greater impact. Let's thrive together. Everyone, welcome back to the Lead with Heart podcast. This is Haley Cooper, your host. And today I have Elizabeth Abel from CCS Fundraising, who I'm so honored that she would choose to do a podcast episode with me. I know there's going to be so much good content in our conversation. So stay tuned. And I've been following her on LinkedIn and Instagram for a while. She always posts. Relatable and just informative topics on both platforms. And so, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me. I am just as much a huge fan of yours and the amazing work that you're doing and your Lead with Heart podcast. And I'm just so honored to be a part of today's conversation.
0: Well, let's jump right in. So, can you tell me? A, I know a little bit of your background, but just for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to nonprofit work and how you got started and where you, how it brought you to where you are today?
1: So I am in my 10th year, closing in on my first decade as a fundraising consultant, really focused on philanthropy and elevating cultures of philanthropy at nonprofit organizations. And if you had told me a decade ago that I would have been working in philanthropy now, I think I would have been surprised. I always knew that I wanted to pursue a career in the nonprofit sector, social impact, Holocaust and genocide education. It's always been very important to me and was really my entree into the social good arena. But it wasn't until I was getting my master's degree and I took a philanthropy course that I had this aha moment where I learned and realized and appreciated the role of philanthropy in equipping nonprofits with the tools and the talent and the resources to ultimately realize the visions that they want to have in the world today. And so philanthropy for me is the driver, it's the fuel, it's the energy that drives the direction of nonprofits and allows us to serve the communities that we're working so hard to serve.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing, and I love your passion for philanthropy. Can we dive a little bit deeper into what philanthropy is? And before we dive into the whole culture of philanthropy thing, can you tell us a little bit more about philanthropy and what it means for you and the work that you're doing now?
1: I would be happy to. So the word philanthropy actually comes from two Greek words philos, which means loving, and anthropos, which means humankind. And essentially, philanthropy means love for humankind. And historically, it's practiced as like welfare for others. And today translates really to charitable donations. But personally, I think philanthropy is so much more than making a donation, although that's obviously incredibly important. It's how we show up. It's how we show compassion. It's how we advocate for causes that we care about. It's how we volunteer on boards that we serve on or service days with our family and friends. And so personally, this idea of philanthropy was brought to life when I was a little girl and learned about the Jewish value of tikkun olam, which means to repair the world through education, charity, and social action. And so that value is something that I've learned to embody and really try actively to embody every day. And it's always nice when your personal identity and your professional career is aligned in such a special way. But for me, philanthropy is really taking measurable actions to make the world a better place and to give back and to pay it forward to others.
0: Yes, I love that definition and that you embody it in your daily life. A lot of people, when they think of philanthropy, at least people that I've come into contact with, don't even know where to start. There's so many nonprofits out there, so many causes to be passionate about. If someone's listening and they don't know like where to start, do you have any ideas for them or insight or advice into like how to just start embracing philanthropy in their daily lives?
1: It's a great question. And I think it comes down to what are the issues and causes that you as a person are passionate about? Are you interested in eradicating poverty? Are you interested in more equitable access to healthcare? And then once you figure out what are the one or two philanthropic priorities that you are interested in supporting, then it comes down to what are some of the organizations that are doing the work to support those priorities? And so step one is really, what do you care about? What brings you energy? What difference do you wanna have in the world? And then step two is, who is a partner organizationally that's doing that already? And how can you support them?
0: Yes, that is great advice. I like that two step advice. Simple and easy to just start Googling the different nonprofits that are out there. I want to shift a little bit into a culture of philanthropy. We all know, as nonprofit professionals, this is a big word. And a lot of nonprofits struggle with embracing this idea of a culture of philanthropy. So can you give, before we dive into the details, can you give a brief definition of what a culture of philanthropy is?
1: A culture of philanthropy to me is when you have an organization that focuses on philanthropy as the lever to drive the social change that you wish to realize as an institution. And it's twofold. One, it's how you're making the case for philanthropic support to your donor audience. Two, how you are engaging your board members and volunteer leaders as fundraising ambassadors. And I know I said it's twofold, but now it's turned into three. And three is how you are building an inclusive culture internally where your employees feel valued, both for their unique identities and also for the community that you are building internally to support your mission-driven work.
0: Wow. I love that. I love all th- three, but I something that I'm passionate about is what you mentioned in number three. It's really in creating that inclusive environment where people feel a part of the mission. So can you dive a little bit deeper into what that means in like the context of a nonprofit?
1: Yeah. So I think it's how we talk about the work that we're doing, how we're using inclusive language and focusing on the communities that we're serving and connecting donors, leaders, team members, and communities through a singular narrative.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I went to an event last week. It was a gala. And right before I walked in to the gala, and I was responsible for the fundraising, someone mentioned to me, there's not a culture of philanthropy here. So good luck. And it really came down to the, I feel like a lot of times board members are And leaders are so connected to strategic decisions that they often forget about the mission. The mission isn't in their daily lives. For program staff, you are living out the mission in your daily life. For fundraisers, sometimes I've had the blessing of working at grassroots organizations where I get to go be a part of the program. And that's always been an important part for me when I'm seeking out an organization because it can be really hard to maintain that passion if you're once removed from the mission. I think when creating that culture of philanthropy, it comes down to that mission and driving that mission. So can you talk a little bit about how do you bring people, leaders and board members back to the mission? And especially when they are making strategic decisions, it needs to be mission-based. And sometimes we get so far, like I said before, so far removed from the mission that we forget where we're going and we just make decisions. So can you talk a little bit about how to bring those people back to the mission so that they can really embrace that culture of philanthropy?
1: It's such a great question and such a great story and anecdote that you shared, because I feel like this comes up so many times. And the answer that I always give is it comes down to storytelling and how you are engaging your board members and your volunteer leaders as storytellers of the work that you're doing. And so it's not just the story of the organization, but it's their personal story, how they got involved, why they got involved, what inspired them, what really moved them, what made them stay involved, what made them join the board, what made them volunteer, what made them give. And when they're able to articulate all of those things, the narrative is so powerful and both like reignites, like, their commitment to the organization and then inspires others to get involved and make a donation and join the board or volunteer. And so it serves as that dual purpose of bringing them closer and then serving as a multiplier effect for the next cohort of leaders who will be champions and fundraising ambassadors.
0: Yes, I love this idea of storytelling. I was just talking to someone today who is a local philanthropist and he gives and volunteers at a nonprofit, and one of the programs that they offer is a sponsor a room. And so, him and his wife have been sponsoring a room for the last couple of years. And people who go into that room write them letters. And he said, sometimes when you're giving, you want to be connected to the mission. You want to be reminded because sometimes you give a check and then you forget what you gave towards or you're giving. And the call to action is for a thousand people. But we all know storytelling is the power of one. It's the power of bringing it back to one person and connecting you to one person. And like that you can make it. It's hard to imagine making a difference in a thousand people's lives, right? Like you feel like $25 or no matter how much you give, that won't even make a dent. But if you can make an impact in one person's life, you feel like you have the power to make a change with whatever size donation that you can make. So Can you talk a little bit about how nonprofits can embrace that idea of storytelling and connecting people to people? Hey there, podcast family. If you're like me and deeply committed to improving your leadership skills and fostering better connections with your team, I've got something truly amazing to share with you. I'm proud to introduce the EMC Masterclass something I talk about often as a certified trainer. It's an incredible program developed by the renowned Dr. Lola Gershfeld, an organizational psychologist and corporate emotional connection expert. You might remember her from a podcast episode where she shared invaluable insights into the world of emotional connection. Dr. Gershfeld's EMC Leaders courses are designed for anyone working with people whether you're a manager, supervisor, team leader, educator, coach, mentor, or a team member. This program is truly for everyone looking to enhance their communication and collaboration skills to raise more revenue for their mission. Now let me tell you why the EMC Masterclass is a game changer. Dr. Gershfeld's groundbreaking emotional connection process has been integrated into top universities curriculum and recognized by international organizations like ICF, HRCI and SHRM. Humans are wired to seek emotional safety. And when we feel safe, we're more likely to take risks, share innovative ideas and collaborate effectively. The EMC process is the catalyst for creating that emotional safety within your team. The Virtual EMC Masterclass consists of eight modules with four hours of expertly recorded material, 13 quizzes to reinforce your learning and a workbook filled with activities for offline practice and something I still refer to daily. Ready to become an Emotional Connection Master? Dr. Gershfield is offering an exclusive detail for our podcast listeners. Use the code Heart to enjoy a generous 10% discount on the EMC Masterclass. Head over to emcleaders.com and enroll in the EMC Masterclass today.
1: Everything that you are saying is resonating with me so much, especially that power of one versus 1,000. And it's interesting. It made me think how often we lean into data and metrics to make the case for support. But it really comes down to how we're telling that story of that single girl or boy who was impacted or that single family or school or patient. And it's that single story that stays with you more than the statistics and the numbers and the infographics. So I could not agree with you more. The question is how do organizations do that? How do they tell that story? And really it's how we're making the case for philanthropic support. And it's a real exercise that we work on. It's how are we building a vision, communicating that vision, funding that vision, developing funding priorities that are cohesive and clear, and then communicating that vision to donors who have the capacity to make meaningful gifts, who have the affinity for the work that you're doing, and with whom we have access so we can have meaningful conversations about their philanthropic support.
0: Yes, I love that idea of having a clear vision and inviting people into that vision and then I'm putting words into your mouth, but like envisioning how they can be a part of that. I also think that creating a clear vision is important for that inclusivity part of your staff and helping people know what they're working towards and making goals and their priorities a part of that vision. Because I feel like sometimes the CEO or the board can hold that vision and it doesn't always trickle down to the bottom staff and it stays at the top. And then people get lost along the way of, what am I working towards? Why am I doing this? Why? And that can lead to burnout. And so can you talk a little bit, we're going to shift gears to more leadership and like, how can leaders be better at communicating that vision and holding it at the front of all that they do so that their staff are involved in that vision and then are able to set goals to be able to work towards that?
1: It's a great question. It's also a really hard one. And it's something that in my work with CEOs and executive directors and development directors, that balance between the big picture strategy and vision with the day-to-day operational activity, it is a tough balance to navigate. And so what I always try and recommend is how to think about how one is approaching a day in a week and how... You're balancing the time that you're spending managing and operationalizing all that you have to do with dedicated time for visioning and strategic thinking and meeting with donors. And when you think about a pie chart, I mean, your CEO should be spending at least 25 to 30% on that vision, whether that's cultivating donors, soliciting donors, fundraising is a number one, if not two priority for CEOs and executive directors, and I'm always sometimes surprised at how it's not always perceived in that way. So I think it's important that expectations are really clear, like I am a CEO, and I'm the chief storyteller, and I'm the chief fundraiser, and I'm the chief leader of the organization. And I think our executive leaderships are role models and how they behave really trickles down. So if you have someone that embraces fundraising and you have someone that's out and about meeting with donors, that culture of philanthropy is going to be really vibrant. I think conversely, when you have a development director that's not really meeting with donors, why should the major gift officers be out and about if they're not being led by example? So I think it's really important as we think about our role as leaders, to think about how people watch us. And what's coming to mind actually is almost like how I am a parent. You know, I have a daughter who's about two and a half years old, and she watches everything that I do. She parrots everything that I say. And so it's actually made me a more conscientious leader because I think about, okay, my daughter's watching me. How are my direct reports watching me, who are obviously much more intellectually advanced than my two-year-old? How are they observing the things that I say and the behaviors that I embody and the work-life balance that I may or may not have mastered? <laughs> and so I think it's a humble reminder to leaders to recognize that while we're leading, we're also being watched and modeled after very closely.
0: Yes, I can totally relate. I now know how I parent because my three-year-old parents my one-year-old like I do. And I'm like, oh, I goodness. it. That is how I sound. (laughs) So yes, I've definitely become more self-aware in how I interact with my children because yes, they parrot everything that I do. So I can totally relate to that. But on another note, I always say self-aware leaders are exceptional leaders. And I've talked about this on multiple podcast episodes. We had the founder of the EMC process, which I'm a train the trainer. And we talk a lot about self-awareness, which is one of the aspects of emotional intelligence. And it's really about understanding how your reactions, your emotions influence others and influence your daily life. And I like this idea of being mindful of how you're interacting and how you're leading and how I think even the CEO, a lot of them talk about, well, my board isn't fundraising, but is that CEO fundraising? (laughs) And how can you get a board to engage in your mission and in fundraising and asking people if you're not doing that yourself. So can you talk a little bit about how leaders can become one more self-aware of their actions? I guess we'll start there. So one more self-aware of their actions and how that influences other, because sometimes people hear self-awareness and they're like, Oh, well, I don't need that. I didn't know I needed to be self-aware to become a leader, but it is an important part because there are people watching you, whether you want people to or not, but that's the responsibility that you take on as a leader. So can you talk a little bit about how leaders can become more self-aware in the roles and responsibilities that they set out to embrace?
1: It's a really, really important question. And I think about my own journey and very much like a continued journey as a leader. And what's been pivotal for me has been mentorship. So I think becoming a self-aware leader means that you're also asking questions and you're asking for feedback and you're inviting feedback constantly from those above and below you. I also think it means you have someone who you can talk to, who's perhaps five or 10 years your senior, who's been where you are, who sees the forest when you see the trees. And that's been really beyond valuable for me and my growth as an executive and when I was an emerging executive. And there are probably three or four women who I meet with, some monthly, some quarterly, some, I just pick up the phone and call when I have big questions. And I always come prepared with agendas for those meetings. Like, what is it that I really want to talk about so I can use my time well, I can use their time well. But having that thought partner who knows me as the person that I am, who knows my career goals, and who can provide advice and guidance and honest feedback is a really important tool to increase self-awareness and ultimately lean in to different leadership styles in a way that really resonates with the diverse colleagues that I met. You know, my leadership style with colleague A might rub colleague B the wrong way. And I think what's equally as important as like developing my leadership style is figuring out what's the style of those that I'm working with and how can we meet in the middle.
0: Yes, I think mentorship is so important. And you nailed it on the head where mentorship is different than coaching. And you set the agenda, you come prepared with your career goals and what you want to focus on. And then that, person more experienced can help guide you there. And, you know, I was thinking about it the other day, like a lot of my career. Yes, there was a lot of Google and classes and courses. But when it comes down to it, it was all about relationships. And it was all about building a network, especially when I was starting my own business and my podcast, people are like, how did you start? Like, how did you think about starting it? And it was just reaching out to people and asking, is this a good idea? Am I crazy? Do you think this will work and getting their honest feedback of, no, this aspect won't work. You should leave with this. And still to today, I'm like, I'm struggling with this and I need your help. And having those critical people in your life is so important. People that you trust, that you can reach out to at any time and really value their time that they have with you and maintain those relationships. So I love that idea of, and I guess my question for you is, I think a lot of people are scared to reach out or don't know where to start with mentorship, but I would say if someone offers you to mentor you, I would not take that lightly. People do not offer to just mentor anyone. And so if people have offered that to you, definitely take them up on that. But what would someone like, are there resources for people in the nonprofit field to reach out to mentors or find a mentor?
1: Yes, and I would answer that in two ways. So I think there's formal mentorship opportunities and informal mentorship opportunities. So I know, for example, I'm based in New York and we have an association of fundraising professionals, New York City chapter, and we actually have a mentorship program. You can Mm -hmm. apply to be either a mentor or a mentee, and it is a pretty high touch matching process. And it's very intentional to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to develop a relationship with someone that they would benefit learning from. I think that's formal. You apply, you get a mentor, you meet monthly, et cetera. And then I think there's informal. And for me personally, I found the informal ones have been really valuable. And those are, who are the people that you connect with naturally? And can you ask them, can I get on your calendar once a quarter to have these big picture conversations with you? Because I so value your guidance and expertise. And that's what I've done. I started to do Quarterly check ins, I would literally just ask permission to get on people's calendars once a quarter. And then if I had something that was time sensitive, I would just let them know and ask if we could hop on a call for 15 minutes. And I'm always very, very clear with the time request because when I've now been on the other side of mentorship, I find it actually quite frustrating when I've allocated time to support someone's growth and they're unprepared for that conversation. So, my advice those who are seeking mentorship is to be really clear on what it is that you want from your mentor to communicate that up front and to be really respectful of their time
0: yes i love that i want to backtrack a little bit when you were talking about your mentorship and really understanding your leadership style i find that so interesting that you tailor your leadership style to each individual that you are working with and so can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and what some of those differences are and how you adapt your leadership style to meet each of those needs.
1: So it brings me back to an executive retreat that we had over the summer where we talked about three different leadership styles that are based in three different core values, authenticity, empathy, and logic. And my natural leadership style is authentic. Like I am who I am. You will get what you get and I will do my best to be the leader that I strive to be every day. There are some people for whom that will really resonate and there are others where that will like absolutely rub them the wrong way. And I've been on the receiving end of both of those where like I've had an authentic leader that I was super inspired by and an authentic leader that I was like, I'm not sure we are connecting. <laughs> so having been on both sides, the other two pillars, so if you have an authentic leader, you can also have a logical leader and an empathetic leader. And what's really important for me is to understand my direct reports. Are they someone that primarily thinks logically, authentically, or empathetically? And I try and elevate those pillars in myself based on how I feel I've received their energies. If I have a director who's very logical, very operational, I try and meet them where they are. And I try and challenge them once we get to know one another, to lean into their authentic self or their empathetic self. But I try really hard to get to know my direct reports as people first. That way we're building a relationship that's grounded in trust and integrity and kind of shared goals for the work that we're doing. And based on how people see themselves in the world and the work that we do. And my husband is a thousand percent logical. He is a surgeon. He does not think empathetically, he thinks logically right or wrong, black and white, there's no gray. And so it's been interesting to, as a team, as someone who's like really authentic and empathetic to working with someone in life who's very logical. And I've kind of applied the work experiences to home, the home experiences to work. And I think it's just been a framework that's been really effective for me.
0: Yes. I love that. I love your idea of meeting people where they are and putting people first. I think that's so important and something that has really come up over the last two years is this idea of putting people first over outcomes and really connecting with people. And that's part of the work that I do through the emotional connection process is connecting people (laughs) to people and helping them understand their language of emotions and how they're feeling about certain situations. Can you talk about a little bit about what that looks like? Obviously, you have a busy timeline. You shared your schedule the other day. There are deadlines to be met. There are things to do for clients like you have outcomes that you need to drive forward. But how do you prioritize amidst all of those deadlines, amidst all of that chaos of your schedule, which you said you got down to a T, but like, how do you manage that for other people and prioritize putting them first?
1: It's a really great question. It's also something I'm still refining. So if I have a 30-minute check-in with one of my directors, I really internally commit to spending five or six minutes not talking about work at the beginning of every check-in. And it's little questions like, what did you do over the weekend? Or what are you doing for the holidays? Or have you seen any great shows lately that I find give you insight into who people are and what's valuable to them? And it allows you to just build a stronger relationship. Conversely, I work in client services, right? I'm a consultant. So what's most important for me to advance any of my deliverables is having a strong partnership and relationship with my client partners. And I had a client partner reach out to me recently because this person felt like they weren't totally connecting with my director. And I asked, is it the work or is it really like the dynamic between the two of you? And it it was a dynamic between the two of them. And the client said, I just feel like I don't know this person, which makes it hard for me to work well with this person. And so my advice to the director that I was working with, I first asked a question. I said, okay, you have an hour check-in each week. How much time are you spending not talking about work? And my director's response was, none. We're only talking about work. We have so much to get done. And so I said, I'm going to challenge you. I want you to spend seven minutes. And I was like, very intentional. I was like, seven minutes. It's longer than five. It's not 10. But it's an appropriate amount of time that you're going to have to ask some open-ended questions to get to know this person. I want you to spend seven minutes. Ask some open-ended questions. You can write them down if that'll make you feel more comfortable. But get to know your client partner. So... Three, four weeks later, I check in with the client and it was like a light bulb switch. They are now in lockstep talking every day and the relationship is in such a better place because we stopped, we put work aside and we spent some time building that rapport.
0: Yes, I love that idea. It all comes back to relationship building and building authentic relationships where you actually care about the person and building, you know, open up to their personal lives. And I think that's so important in leadership. And I've shared this before, where a lot of times we have these outcomes and these expectations of people. And I've had this with my own direct reports where they're not they're not performing up to their expectations. And I'm so quick to jump to conclusions and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're not doing it correctly. And instead, really having to take that mindful step back and be like, "Okay." Clearly, something is going on here. I can't just jump to conclusions and make a decision about what's going on with them and asking them, being like, hey, is everything okay?" And asking those open questions where it's not just jumping to conclusions, but really trying to understand what's going on. And obviously they can share as much as they want or they don't have to share anything. But it really and then asking like, how I can help in this time, because everyone has a personal life that's going on. And sometimes it's like, we're so taught to leave it at home. We're so Mm -hmm. taught to just, we walk in the door and like whatever happened with our kids or our family, 20 minutes or on the ride to work, that's gone. But obviously it does impact our daily life. So Mm -hmm. how do you approach situations like that where people maybe, you kind of shared with this direct report where they were having an issue between each other and were able, and that's amazing that they were able to transform their relationship and really be more effective. But can you share a little bit about like how you approach situations where, you know, you have a deadline, you have an outcome, and maybe people aren't performing up to expectation?
1: So I try and provide candid feedback in real time to avoid scenarios like that. So I'm pretty communicative. Like my number one thing is when you work with me, it's all about how we're communicating with one another. I want to know where you are in your work plan. If you're ahead, let's celebrate it. If you're behind, let me know so we can figure out how to work on it together. And so I check in with each of my direct reports twice a week. We have one meeting on Monday, and that's really to prep for the week ahead, to make sure we're on track for our deliverables, talk about big strategic priorities for the next two to three weeks. And then a smaller check-in on Wednesday or Thursday. That's really focused on where are we? What's our progress towards these deliverables? Where are the roadblocks? How can I be helpful? And if we have any client meetings in between debriefing and prepping. And I found that, and then I'm of course like available on like text, Teams, email, et cetera, in between. And what I've found is that having this regular cadence of communication allows you to get ahead of big mishaps. Of course, there are small bumps along the road, but I found that when you get into a habit of providing direct feedback in real time, it makes it easier to get ahead of any larger challenges, at least for me.
0: Yes, I love that idea. And I've talked about this on other podcast episodes of creating regular feedback loops, because I think so often we're used to like, I know in my own experience, I've had a performance evaluation and what's been told in that performance evaluation wasn't told to me all year long, and it comes as a surprise because there wasn't that regular feedback loop until six months or a year when you're at that performance evaluation and you're anticipating what they're going to say because you know there hasn't been that regular cadence. So how can people I know that you do it on a weekly basis, but what are some other tips that you might give to people that are struggling with that feedback loop? to really instill it in the culture of their organization?
1: So something I started to do with my managers about four or five years ago, because of exactly what you just said, I felt like our one year performance review conversations just felt so disconnected from our daily work. As I started to schedule quarterly career check-ins with my two managing directors, one-on-one, and they were one hour, once a quarter. And I will admit, I do this right now With the president of my firm. I do this right now with my current manager and I do this with my two mentors and I have agendas. (laughs) I like to know what's the state of the company? What's keeping you up at night? What is it that you're excited about? What are the challenges and how do I fit into all of these pieces? And then with my manager, it was like, what does my project load look like? What's coming down the pipeline? Where are my challenge growth opportunities? What professional development opportunities should I be thinking about to get from here to the next stage of my career? And it's actually funny because I am now at a stage where I'm about to offer those to all of my direct reports, because as we're heading into 2023, I really want to feel like I am not only a leader of projects, but a leader of people. And like, how do I do that? I asked myself, how did it work for me? And so I'm going to offer this to all of my direct reports, quarterly professional development check-ins to talk about anything, but not our projects.
0: Wow. I love that idea and that you're so bold and brave for taking your own experience in and really finding it valuable and wanting to instill in it in other people. Cause like I've said before, it's really, it can be really hard to remind yourself that you're a leader of people, but I love that transformation and I'm excited to Watch what that looks like and see what you learn from doing that in 2023. Obviously, you already are embracing that leadership of people, but really seeing the feedback that you get. And I think often in nonprofits, you know, we're known for not offering professional development and not wanting to elevate people's careers. And it's hard. And. That's one of the main reasons why people leave every 18 months in fundraising positions is because there isn't that career trajectory or career growth. So dive a little bit deeper into what I know as a consulting firm, it might look a little different than what it does in, you know, an actual nonprofit, but what do some of those professional development opportunities and growth opportunities look like for your employees and how can you help or how do you choose to help guide them there? I've only had one CEO who I said, I want to be a CEO. And he goes, let me help you. This is the areas and gaps that you have. So I'm going to help you meet with this person so that you can start learning those skills and to be seen and to feel heard made me feel so good and actually believe that one day I could be a CEO of an organization because someone wanted to help support me get there. So can you talk a little bit about like what in reality that'll look like for you and helping people? embrace the idea of professional development.
1: It's such a beautiful story. And that must have been so meaningful and validating to hear. I'm so happy that you had that experience. (laughs) So I think, again, there's like formal and informal opportunities. I think the formal is going to conferences and attending webinars and like not being bashful about asking your employer to fund those opportunities. The worst that happens is that they say no, but like they might not. And I have asked for my fair share of expenses to be covered. Oftentimes, the answer is yes. Once in a while, it's no. And then I have to decide, is this something that I want to fund myself or not? I also think reading. There are some really exceptional books about leadership and professional development, women's leadership in particular. So reading. I just finished my 2022 Read to Lead series, which is the second full year that i've done this essentially i read 12 books in 12 months and write a book review and personally i selected books that were written by female authors or featuring female leaders because women's leadership is important to me but it is incredibly difficult for me to quantify how much i have learned and gained and grown simply by reading on my own time and then again mentorship which we talked about and the last thing is networking so Have a strong LinkedIn presence, build your connections, reach out to people, invite them for virtual coffee. I have found that since we've been remote, getting 30 minutes on someone's calendar is actually not that hard. And I have had more virtual coffees over the past two years than I can count, like quite literally. And it's been both people who I've reached out to that I've been inspired by, and people who have reached out to me that I say yes. I mean, I say yes to almost every person who asks me to meet because, I know what it feels like to be on the other side of that request. So, again, there are formal and informal opportunities, and I would create a personal list for yourself. What are the formal conferences that you want to attend? What are the, you know, perhaps it's coaching if you're in more of an executive leadership role, and what are the costs? And when you're requesting funding for those professional development opportunities, come prepared with the benefits of why it'll serve the organization. And I think that's really important too.
0: Yes, I love those ideas. And obviously listening to podcasts like this, and I know there's so many good nonprofit leadership podcasts out there are really good snippets of one feeling less alone, but also learning from other nonprofit leaders in the space. And yes, I love that idea of mentorship and then coming prepared for the benefits of the organization. Those are all great tips. And everything that you have shared today has been so wonderful. I can't wait to listen back to this episode and just start taking notes. So let's end with, where can people find you? Where can people follow you and learn more and get connected with you and maybe have that virtual coffee chat?
1: (laughs) So there are three ways you can connect with me. First, I'm a Senior Vice President at CCS Fundraising. You can find me on ccsfundraising.com's website. You can email me directly through the website. Second, I love all things LinkedIn, Elizabeth Abel. You can find me and connect with me on LinkedIn. I do post quite regularly about podcasts, conferences, leadership, book recommendations. And then finally, Instagram, Elizabeth Bernie Abel. And this is where I post nonprofit and fundraising industry insights and a little bit in the day of the life, which I did earlier this week. Also some photos of the family. But those are the three ways that you can connect with me and I encourage you to do so. All things philanthropy, fundraising, and women's leadership.
0: Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for recording this with me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you as it always is. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you have valued these stories or learned something from what you've heard please share this podcast episode or follow me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your support and together we can build a better community and world.